the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order. Release those men, the jailer told Paul. The magistrate has ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks, Diane. Excellent. That is the word of the Lord this morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Good? What about, what about in light of the, the celebrations in our city these uh, last few days, on the count of three, we have a traditional Calgary Stampede Yahoo. On the count of three, right? One, two, three. Yahoo! Can you imagine if we had the intercom on outside and there's people walking for a coffee in the morning and they get the old Yahoo coming out of church? Yahoo! Jesus is alive and well. Okay, I'm going to grab one more stand here. It's, it's not this. I won't break it. Jeff, I'm going to put it right here. Okay. So, this, uh, no matter how many times I get up in front of people, there's still so much anxiety and, and nerves that are going through me. And uh, I just want to pray as we open up... Uh, the text that we heard this morning. There's a, there's a lot there in the narrative in Acts. So let me pray and we'll get going. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior. And we thank you that you give your people the Holy Spirit that help open up the word to us. And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would receive the message that you have for us. 
God, that you would just use me as a vessel to proclaim whatever people need to hear this morning. We come from different places, and we've had different weeks, and there's a message in the Word of God for us today. So I pray that you'd be glorified in our worship as we receive the message today. So this morning, we're coming back to Acts chapter 16, and before we go from verses 16 to 40, I'm just going to review what we did in the first 15 verses a couple weeks ago. So at the beginning of the chapter 16, we had Timothy join up with Paul and Silas as they head out to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit was putting roadblocks in their way and prevented them from entering into northern Asia because God was bringing the gospel to Europe for the first time. And so this trio ends up on the coast of the Aegean Sea where they meet up with Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts and the book of Luke. And so he joins this, this fellowship of the ring and then being led by the Holy Spirit, they head to Macedonia, which is southern Greece. So for the first time ever recorded, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to Europe. And we praise God for that because you and I here this morning, worshiping Jesus in 2012, can in some sense trace back our spiritual heritage back to the church in Philippi. Now in Philippi, we saw Lydia of Thyatira, wealthy businesswoman, she received the gospel, and she, she received the gospel through kind of a coffee donut conversation with Paul at a prayer meeting down by the river. And we looked at that Greek word for spoken that Paul used there, and it was the word for a conversation. So Paul didn't preach a sermon to her by the river, but he had a conversation. And in that kind of Tim Horton Starbucks moment, Paul revealed Jesus Christ and Lydia accepted her into, in her life, as her life, and we witnessed the first European Christian convert. And now, this is exciting stuff, because the first half of Acts chapter 16 is a picture of what the whole book of Acts is about. And that big idea, again, is that God's kingdom advances as Christians witness to the risen and returning Christ. And they do this by preaching and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we say that the Spirit of God is reaching lost people through us as we share the gospel by our words and our actions. So we'll pick up where we closed last time with Lydia's appropriate and beautiful response to the gospel in verse 15 from the NIV. When she and her members of her household were baptized, she invite, invited us into her home and she said, if you consider me a believer, come stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so we noticed that the two evidences that God got a hold of her life was that Lydia's heart was open and she was obedient. She had believed in Jesus and she was baptized, identifying her life with Christ. That's a great sign of humility and, and a humble heart when a child of God is willing to obey the command for baptism, which is not essential for salvation, it's not forced upon them by anyone, but it's a simple act of obedience and a sign of the relationship with the Father, with the Savior. So, first question of this morning is, are you living a life of obedience to Christ? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do as I command. So are we living, am I living a life of obedience to Christ? You know, maybe some of you here today have believed in Jesus for years, and yet you're not even baptized. 
And I would ask you, why not? Because Jesus says that that's the next step in your faith is baptism. And last weekend, many of our students uh, at Thornhill Baptist Church here, we ended our youth ministry year by going camping out at Sylvan Lake. We had a lot of fun in the sun and on the beach and on the water slides, playing four on a couch with no couch, singing Bieber songs with Freddie. Thank you. I won't get into that. But most importantly, we got to share in the celebration of one of our own, well, now grade 10 students, Evan Stacy's baptism. So out at Jarvis Bay on Sylvan Lake, Evan made a statement to us all. And Evan said that he wanted his life to be all about Jesus and that being baptized was the next step for him in his faith journey. And I think it's so cool that this young man in going into grade 10 is getting the picture, that he understands that he's different because Jesus Christ is Lord and King in his life. And like Lydia, he too wants to live a life of obedience. And now, obedience to baptism is just one thing. But what about all the other teachings and commands that Jesus gives us? Commands to love your enemy, to do good to those who persecute you, to those who hate you. What about taking care of the poor and the hungry, the lost, the lonely? Are you a difference maker wherever you go because Jesus is in you? Are you so immersed in your relationship with the living God that the gospel cannot help but come through you? See, it's good to hear and read scripture like this this morning because we get an idea of the proper response to the gospel. But obedience was not the only thing that we saw in Lydia's life. We also saw this change of love as she opened up her house and, and was kind to these missionaries. She insisted they stay at her house. And love for the family of believers, her new brothers in faith as well, but love for the body of Christ, love for the family of God and the church has always been a mark of a true follower of Christ. And those who do nothing for Jesus or his church... They give a pretty sad witness for a changed heart, right? How many of you know that there's a world of difference between being a believer in Jesus and actually following Jesus? You know, I'd say what the Bible says. I'd say what Jesus says. And that is you will know a tree by its fruit. And in this case, hospitality is the fruit that we see in Lydia's life. And it's the fruit that we should see in our own lives if we proclaim the name of Christian. So when's the last time you had someone over for dinner or opened up your home? Soapbox. It's sad to see people who claim the title of Christian, but their life is no different than anybody else in their school or in their job or in their neighborhood. I would ask you this morning, as we move from Lydia's response to the gospel, to the, to, to the good news of Jesus, are you living a life of obedience and love towards others? You know, you might say, well, Freddie, I, I try to invite people. Let me stop you right there. You know, I'm grateful for the Star Wars movies because they gave us that great, great theologian Yoda. And Yoda tells us that there is no try, do or do not. Now, I look out here and I see some of our high school students and Timothy, uh, Isaiah's looking. Yoda doesn't say that. No, he's right. Yoda says... Do or do not. There is no try. But the point is 
The closer you are to Jesus Christ, the closer your life looks like his until obedience and hospitality are simply second nature. There'll be no try. You'll just do. And so here we are. The call to Macedonia is turning out great. Lydia becomes a believer. Uh, She's following Jesus Christ. He is Lord of her life. Her household become Christians. And there's this real sense of victory here because the gospel is making headway in this city of Philippi, this wicked, pagan, sinful, lost city. The gospel is penetrating. And now if you remember, Philippi is an important strategic city in Europe. This is a chunk of Rome right here in Macedonia. And there are a lot of important people coming here and going. It's on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Philippi is located on the Trans-Canada Highway of Macedonia. And if the gospel gets going here, it could travel fast right across Europe. Now, who do you think is going to have a problem with that? The devil. Yeah, Satan. Demons. Yes, the spiritual forces of darkness own Philippi. This is a city that's steeped in sin, and we're going to see it here right away. But the point that you have to get here is that the enemy of God and man, our adversary, the devil, evil's not just going to sit back and let the good news of Jesus Christ setting people free from lives of bondage to sin. Evil's not just going to sit back and let that happen. And Paul and Silas would tell you this straight up, that if you're going to share the gospel, you're going to face adversity. So we go to verse 16. Once when we were going to a place of prayer, so as we said, our fellowship of the ring, Frodo, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they're on their way to the place of prayer, probably down by the river, to worship with the other Christians, to share the gospel. And on the way there, the team crosses paths with a demon-possessed girl. And the scripture says, We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God! They are telling you the way to be saved! So let's get a little background on this. The slave girl had a spirit of divination. So literally in the Greek it says that she had a spirit of the python. And the main thing that we need to know here is that this girl had a particular kind of demon possession connected with Greek mythology, enabled her to tell the future. So, And one of the commentaries said that she was a medium, she was a witch, possessed by an evil spirit who used her as a channel to convey clairvoyant messages, interpreting various events of the day and predicting the future of people. So apparently... She was real uh, box office attraction to people, and they came from all around to have her predict the future, and they paid quite generously for this. And now, in the Roman world, fortune tellers were held in high esteem. It didn't matter, a Roman leader, politician, soldiers, they didn't do anything without consulting diviners or fortune tellers. So that meant they were big money. So not only is this girl able to predict the future, she also knew who Paul and his companions were and what they were teaching. They were servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. And she followed Paul around and kept repeating this at the top of her lungs. So what was the problem? I mean, wasn't this the message that Paul wanted to tell everybody anyway? Well, first of all, let me say this. 
I feel for this girl. And so does Paul. She's trapped. Life has her pretty locked up, and she's shackled both spiritually and economically because not only is she demon-possessed, but her owners are making quite a profit by exploiting her in this state. It's sad. One human taking advantage of another human. It happened then, it happens today. And now this announcement, it, it, she keeps making, it's both helping, but it's also hindering the mission here. You see, to our ears and to Jewish ears, it rings of a little bit of truth using words like most high God. But to pagans, polytheistic pagans in Philippi, there were many highest gods. That this title had been attached to Zeus and Baal and many others. So a pagan hearer in Philippi would understand this term to refer to whatever deity, whatever god that he or she considered supreme. So initially, this declaration may seem to help Paul, as it is kind of true, and it probably attracts crowds. It may even provide a good starting point for discussing the gospel with pagans, but it has to be corrected time and time again. And it can become an annoyance. But there's also this. You see, it's also true that the demonic spirit knows that the presence and power of God is with the missionaries. And it's possible that this shouting is being done in sarcastic mockery. Maybe it's intended just to disrupt the missionaries. Maybe it's not even supposed to enhance preaching the gospel. But the point is that the text is not entirely clear why Paul gets so upset and distressed. But it does seem that there was something not right about how all of this was going down because the way in which this evil spirit was controlling the girl and the way in which she was announcing it didn't sit right with Paul. And so the scripture says, finally Paul became so troubled, so annoyed, so disheartened that he turned around to the spirit and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to get out of her. What do you think happened? At that very moment, the spirit left. But this whole scene still begs a few unanswered questions. I mean, how could she cry out that these men are servants of the Most High God? You know, she's demon-possessed. Maybe demons know who the Son of the Most High God is. How can someone who's demon-possessed even proclaim the truth? Let me tell you this if you don't know it already. And if you do, hear it again. The devil is subtle. Demonic influence around us lures people in all the time with partial truths and then gives them lies. You know, first, trust is gained by using the truth, and then the setup of lies and falsehood begin. That's how the devil operates. That's how demons operate. That's how evil moves into a place. And now perhaps the demonic plan here was to gain the respect of the people by following Paul around and saying this proclamation over and over so that the people who believed what Paul preached would also believe that the girl, too, was of God. And if they believed her, then she could introduce false or misleading information to these new Christians about what the gospel wasn't. And this happens all the time. The devil doesn't care how he gets to people just as long as his end goal is accomplished. And what is his end goal? To destroy the gospel. And if he can't destroy it, he'll poison it. And if he can't do that, he'll try and bury it and lock it up. But the enemy will never cease trying to stop this good news from spreading. Let me tell you something. I hate this. People who use the Christian faith 
to abuse the gospel for whatever reason. I don't care. Power, fame, fortune, money, ridicule. This is why cults read the Bible. Because they can bait you in with something that seems legit. They appear to be right on track, but their doctrine is straight out of the pits of hell. And so we studied this as a youth group. And some of our youth studies this past ministry year, we investigated some of the so-called Christian faiths. If you look at the Canadian census, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness fall under the Christian heading. Now, whether it's them or any other false Christian religion, they preach just enough truth to lead many well-meaning and sincere people away from the true fundamentals of the faith. That's why Jesus Christ has to warn us himself to watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing with a little bit of truth, but they are ferocious wolves. Truth mixed with error. That's how these cults form. Okay? And the reason I hate it is they claim that the Bible is the word of God, but then they add something to it. They add to the gospel. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Some of them take away from the scripture. They twist it. They distort God's truth by conjuring up their own beliefs about Jesus and about salvation. And that's why Jesus has to tell us, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. But test the Spirit. See, you have a responsibility. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, Paul recognizes that for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of this girl's well-being, the best thing to do here, the best thing to be done, is get rid of this nuisance. And he casts out the demon in Jesus' name, and immediately the slave girl was set free. Verse 19 to 21. Now, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. Hey, they're throwing our city into an uproar, advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So when Paul casts out the demon, he creates a confrontation between himself and for those who have a financial stake in the demon-possessed girl. She can no longer tell fortunes, and so their business is wiped out. Out with the demon, out with their income. And the owners don't take kindly to the closing down of their little enterprise. They grab Paul and Silas, drag them before the local magistrates. Rhetorical question. Why are Paul and Silas the only targets of persecution? I just mentioned that we have a little fellowship of the ring going on here, right? We have Luke, we have Timothy, we have Paul, we have Silas. Why are just Paul and Silas drug away? And I would say it's probably because Luke cast out the demon, or Paul cast out the demon, and Silas is the other main leader, and they're both Jews. Timothy is only a half-Gentile. He's half-Jew, and Luke is a Gentile. So for that reason, they drag these two missionaries, Paul and Silas, before the town council, and they demand that they be prosecuted. And now these magistrates, what do we know about them? They are the highest officials in any Greco-Roman city. They are appointed by Rome, and they are the judges. It's their sole duty to administrate law and order according to Roman justice. And now each colony, Philippi, Thessalonica, they all had two magistrates. And now these shrewd, angry owners of the slave girl... Now, they frame their accusation very wisely. They do it in political terms. These men are Jews. They're throwing the city in an uproar. 
They're advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. See, later on, Acts chapter 18, Emperor Claudius, he issues an edict that expels Jews from Rome because of the so-called civil unrest they're causing. So no doubt, these officials, they know about these Jewish disturbances. The news travels fast when you're on a main highway in Macedonia. So they're probably somewhat predisposed to think that Jewish guys are troublemakers. And now, these specific charges that the slave girl owners bring against Paul and Silas are in two parts, even though they try to hide the fact that this is all about money. First, they claim that Paul and Silas are causing a public disturbance, right? They're throwing the city in an uproar, and this would be a pretty good scare tactic, you know, to frighten the local officials, because they've heard about the problems with Jews in other cities in Asia. Now, secondly, they claim that Paul and Silas, these good-for-nothing Jews, are promoting illegal customs. And this is a play on the crowd, because the city's pride in being Roman, they were charged with disturbing what is called the Pax Romana, which is the Roman law, and they were advocating an illegal religion. It was against the law to practice an alien religion, especially one that had not received public sanction from the state. And we continue now, verse 22 to 24. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. And he fastened their feet in stocks. This was no trial. A trial would involve Paul and Silas presenting a defense. This was a joke. This was a kangaroo court. It reminds me of the night that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was betrayed. At midnight, the midnight trial, the crowd, or should I say the mob, pretty much led the conviction and the punishment of Paul and Silas. So the magistrates order these two missionaries to be beaten with rods and thrown into the local jail. Now the jailer is told to guard them carefully, and he places them in the dungeon. 